Welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for April 25th, 2018, although it may be closer to the 26th by the time I get this posted. Busy day, I'm not sure why, just a lot of weird things have come up. Um, another thing about today is I'm going to put my little announcements that I sometimes say for the end at the beginning here. I'm only recording an intro, I'm not recording an outro. You're going to hear the closing music at the end of the interview. And maybe I'll go with that from now on. We'll, we'll see. Uh, actually, have a more major announcement, which is that I've rethought a little bit about how to do things through Patreon. Um, fortunately, we're early enough in the game and I don't have that many patrons right now. Uh, so I don't think I'll need to really make good on anything. Although, if you have donated a dollar or two and feel like uh, you didn't get what you signed up for, um, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll make good on that somehow. I may start offering copies of Single Digit Soccer or a few other things out there to uh, make good on things. But I, I get the feeling that people right now who are supporting Ranting Soccer Dad are doing so not so much for some specific content, but because they support the idea and, and want to support my work, and I appreciate that. Um, but Again, I, I do want to make sure I'm making good on that. Uh, but what I'm going to do is the area guides are going to be open to all. Uh, I just found that it doesn't make a lot of sense that I, I have to crowdsource these things. I really do. Um, because I can't be everywhere. And leads change so quickly. I mean, the we're waiting for the fallout from the U.S. Youth Soccer announcement of their new regional conferences. How is that going to change the landscape of things? Are a lot of teams going to drop out of leagues and participate only in that? I don't know. Um, I'm having tr- I will tell you up front, I'm having trouble getting answers to some of those questions, which I find very interesting. Um, it could just be changes of staff. It could just be that people don't want to talk about it. So I will keep pursuing that. And in any case, I think the area guides just really need to be open to all. And, you know, hopefully people will enjoy that and decide, hey, I'm going to contribute anyway. That's fine. And I am going to do some um, patron-only content. I may do some uh, data experiments where I do some things, um, have some data that's only available to patrons. And also, my long-term goal would be that the Patreon site would become uh, sort of a, um, a message board only for patrons. So you'd have... You'd have a little bit of reliability built in, I think. I think you'd have um, sort of a select crowd uh, as opposed to some of the nonsense that you can get elsewhere. So I think it would be an interesting environment to have discussions and you know, you'd have priority on how you... Um, you essentially have priority access to chime in on what I'm doing. So I don't mind putting that up for sale. I think that's, I think that's fine ethically professionally and all those other things too so those are those are the announcements for today and do keep an eye on rantingsoccerdad.com because there there's a lot going on right now uh, I have a few things I'm going to be launching pretty soon hopefully later today but more likely tomorrow I'm going to be posting a survey of parents and a, a survey of coaches to ask about high school soccer and specifically how difficult is it to make a high school team? Because that's something that goes through my mind every now and then. And great, I, I live in a fairly competitive area, and I know people who play 
at what you would call an elite level who don't make their high school team. And I'm not talking about, you know, the Michael Jordan didn't make his varsity as a sophomore thing, which is, you know, I actually lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he's from uh, for three years and worked for the paper. And there were people the paper who were always irritated by sort of the mythology around Michael Jordan not making the team because they said, no, he was a sophomore and he played on the JV. It wasn't that big a deal. Um, granted, it, it still seems surprising that Michael Jordan as a sophomore would not be on the varsity at Laney High School, but uh, again, at least he had a place to play. We're talking here about kids who don't make the JV. Yeah, and I, I know kids who play at a pretty high level, their teams would be fairly high ranked uh, within the state of Virginia, and they don't make the JV at their local high schools. And it's funny because you go to uh, clubs' websites and they tell you all about their college programs and, you know, oh, these kids made it to college and we have these uh, showcase events where we'll put you in front of college scouts and so forth and then kids from their A-teams don't make the JV at their local high schools. So I'm, I'm doing a survey to try to get to the bottom of that and see how tough it really is and just see where it goes. So look for that sometime this week. My guest today is a man who wears many hats. In fact, we'll describe in the first couple of minutes of the interview. Uh, he has gone from being a practicing attorney to, well, he, he was a soccer player in college as well. I mean, he didn't just go into law school and then decide, hmm, this sport looks interesting. I think he'll get into that. No, he, he was, by any definition of the word, a soccer person. Uh, and he was a practicing attorney, and he's gone through coaching ranks. He's coached at the professional and youth level, has been a technical director. He's also... Uh, works with the ECNL and U.S. club soccer. And so he's in what you might call the Turf Wars, um, and I've been calling the Turf Wars. He objects to the name Turf Wars, and you'll see why. It's a very interesting discussion with a very interesting guy. Um, you may have guessed who he is if you follow all these issues by now. Of course, you probably clicked on the link anyway. Uh, it's Christian Labors. And you may have heard him on Glenn Kurtz's Serious That Sim show last week or a few other places here and there. Always has some interesting things to say. And so we get into the turf war concept a good bit here. And I think you'll find an interesting discussion. So here he is, interview with Christian Lavers. Here today with Christian Lavers, who is an attorney the executive vice president of U.S. club soccer, the president of the ECNL, uh, both the boys and girls, executive vice president. How many jobs do you have? <laughs> well, I, uh, I've i been fortunate to uh, be involved in a lot of different good organizations in the game in the past, uh, you know, seven to ten years. And so, um, you know, my, my uh, I spent a lot of time, obviously, operating and running the ECNL on the boys and the girls side and uh I still do uh, do some work with US club soccer uh kind of uh, providing some advice and consultancy in a variety of different areas uh and then uh, I I am the technical director for a youth club here uh, FC Wisconsin in uh, Milwaukee Wisconsin so all in the game and there's some overlap and uh you know it's certainly a busy day but it's uh there's worse things to do right Right, and an assistant coach at one point with uh, Red Stars. Yes, I coached uh, in the NWSL for 
the first three years and then took a year off and then uh, was involved kind of, again as a consultant and uh, and providing just different perspectives from a tactical perspective and uh, last year uh, with the team and uh, now I'm no longer doing that just uh, to as you mentioned at some point uh, something's got to give so uh, I am no longer doing that but enjoyed the time working in NWSL and, and working with some great players. And now through a couple of these positions You've ended up sort of on the front lines of what we call turf wars in the United States, both for U.S. club soccer and its turf war with um, everybody else, and then the ECNL and its turf war uh, with the Development Academy. And yet, you managed to come across as a nice guy. Uh, is, is that a challenge? Is it a challenge to sort of keep your composure when you have – I mean, we have people who – well, just last night, I had to run over and yell at some baseball fans because I heard uh, a JV high school baseball coach use some language over a call that I could hear over on the soccer practice that I had. You have these discussions of, that are higher stakes than the call uh, one call at the plate in a JV baseball game, and is it a challenge to sort of keep being nice to people while this is going on? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, turf war is, a, is, a, is words that some, that other people would use. What, what I would say is that I've been, uh, I've been on one side of, of different debates on philosophy, on values, on, on methodology, uh, and, and structure in the game. And, you know, I, you know, my training, as you mentioned earlier, is, you know, I worked as a corporate attorney for many years and, my, uh, I wasn't a litigator. I was a negotiator. I did uh, commercial transactions and basically trying to put, put deals together. And ultimately in that world, you learn uh, very quickly that you can disagree without being disrespectful. Uh, you can have different opinions and still be professional and have positive professional relationships. And that's what I like to think about uh, in this process. And obviously there's been tough times and there's times that, uh, you know, things get a little bit difficult. but I look at it as I have strong opinions, philosophies, and beliefs. I represent a group, uh, whether it be clubs or leagues or, or, or technical leaders that share many of those same beliefs. And it's, you know, it's my, my job to be the leader in, in many ways in some of those discussions and represent the philosophies and beliefs and values that we have. And, and uh, at the end of the day, I think that sort of shifting and or sifting and winnowing, as you may call it, uh, is better for the game. When you have uh, positive debate discussion, you tend to find better solutions to problems. And, uh, you know, we feel like uh, we're doing many, many good things uh, to help make the game better, make the player experience better, and hopefully uh, move the game forward in the country, although – uh, nobody will pretend that it's been smooth process and it's not two steps forward, one step back sometimes. But I feel like we're moving in a positive direction. We've done a lot of good things that have that have made the game better. So perhaps U.S. soccer's coaching education should also include uh, maybe a couple of years at law school. So uh, <laughs> we're now doing well. This. I, I'll tell you the my my when I went to law school at Wisconsin, I think I paid uh, I was in state, so I think I paid about three and a half thousand dollars a semester for law school. So you can do your own uh, cost equation <laughs> on what you get from uh, education in this country now. Yeah, my my wife went through in state law school while I was uh, 
well, I was supporting his own journalist salary, so uh, yeah, I've been there too. <laughs> uh, so the most recent news uh, in in these spheres we're talking about is that uh, some clubs that were in the first season of the Girls Development Academy have decided that next year they're going to close down their Development Academy operation. In some cases, they were actually doing both last year. I know there were some clubs that were doing both DA and ECNL last year. Um, I don't remember if these specific three clubs that were in the news last week were both, but they decided, in any case, they decided they're going to be ECNL and not Development Academy. And I've heard you on the radio with Glenn Croats talking about, and heard the, one of the club directors talking about the reasons in part of it's high schools, part of it is substitution policy. And, uh, so what do you see as, as these advantages, um, what, what are the advantages to ECNL? Why did you think, in short, we see these clubs coming back or coming to the ECNL? Well, uh, you know, I said it earlier. We, the ECNL is founded uh, in in the, the roots of club soccer, and and what that means is that the the clubs and the directors, staff, administrative or technical, uh, but really the, the the club landscape and people who deal with players and families uh, in their in their uh, cities and uh, in their communities um, and work with players across multiple age groups with all of the things that go on in life and where soccer fits um, and with kids, some some of whom uh, have aspirations to be uh, so at the very, very top of the game and dreams of, of winning, winning World Cups and being professionals and some who are recreational and everything in between. Uh, that that community of, of club soccer is where our roots are. And so uh, every decision we make comes from um, our values um, and, and that are born from that club soccer community and what we think is necessary uh, to make the game better uh, in, in club soccer and for the players in club soccer. And that uh, is, is a different community. Um, you know, we you can look at it from as simple uh, of the fact that you have very, very different different uh, soccer landscape from New York to L.A. to um, Kansas City. You have very different types of players and families and different values. Um, and the way that you operate a club in those in those three different markets is very different. The pressures you feel um, or the the reality of of the world that you're in can be very different. Um, even though you're you're all in club soccer, for example, obviously that can extend to uh, system of play and style of play, and that there is no there is no one right style or right system. Uh, of course, everybody can have their preference of how they envision the game, but the game can be direct or indirect. Um, you can take 15 passes to go to goal or two passes to go to goal, and, and ultimately what, what matters is that you are developing and teaching players that are educated in the game and can play in any style, but how a team plays and, and, and how what a system is that a club may use, that's not something that we feel also is uh, uh, there should be one right answer. Uh, and then you can take that even into uh, the uh, the coaching styles. Um, there's every coach, every successful coach, I think, is partially successful because they are true to who they are as a person and and their personality. And the players respect and trust that type of honesty. And 
That means some coaches are more engaged and uh, are more vocal or hands-on or interactive in the game. Some coaches are less so. Uh, and I don't think, and I think most of our clubs believe there's not one coaching style that is the right um, coaching style or the perfect coaching style. And so what we try and do is, is recognizing all these different uh, diversity, uh, all, all the different diversity that I just, that I went through, whether it's cultural, geographic, system, style, coaching, um, that's part of the beauty of the game. And what we try and do is bring all that together and help everybody get better uh, by having a high standard of competition, which uh, in, by its very nature drives people to improve by sharing resources and bringing experts and leaders in to, to educate um, and then try and raise standards collaboratively through that. And I, I think that ultimately is a lot of what resonates with our clubs uh, and with the people that uh, that are, are leading those clubs. And, you know, I would rem- be remiss if I also didn't talk about the fact that, you know, we are youth coaches and an incredibly important part of, of being a youth coach is development of a mature young adult uh, and teaching them life life lessons through sport. Um, and uh, I think that's something that we, we think is really uh, implicit and innate in, in, in any good youth sports platform. And uh, we try and make that very clear within the ECNL. And I, and I know many, many of the clubs feel, feel the same way. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why clubs feel like the ECNL is a good spot for them. And uh, we listen to them and have conversations with them every single day about that that stuff because ultimately that's who 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 we work with that's that's who we are accountable to, and it's it's worked very well for us in terms of making the game better and helping players uh, accomplish their goals and move on to college and beyond. Now, one thing the DA and the ECNL have in common is that these are national leagues that you are both trying to create. Um, create regions within that in some cases there are good clusters of um good clusters of teams in one area um but even for those who can afford it i've seen people kind of back away from uh playing in uh where they have to travel a lot i know that um near me braddock road uh when they went to the boys ecnl uh lost some players because they didn't want to travel to boston for league games um and the ECNL isn't quite as siloed away as the Development Academy is. Your clubs can still play in local tournaments and so forth. Um, but is there anything else you can do to try to address the uh, the travel instinct, not just for families, but there are people pointing out on the development side of things. Um, I was in a discussion recently where someone said it's unfortunate that to be considered an elite soccer player in this country, you have to travel a lot. What can be done about that? Um, well, I think the, fir- the first part is just to clarify is, is that our, our clubs and players are completely unsiloed, if that, that's a word. <laughs> we have no prohibitions um, on what they can and can't do in terms of other leagues and other competitions. And we think, and that goes back to some of our core values, um, but we think that it's not a league's role to mandate and prohibit uh, what what kids can and can't do and what competitions they can and can't play in, whether that's high school soccer or whether that's mm-hmm. local tournaments or whether it's other showcases that they want to go, it's ultimately up to the leadership of the coach and the director 
of coaching on putting together the appropriate schedule for his players or her players. And, and that includes a balancing of number of games and number of trainings. It includes a balance of, of days, uh, days of competition and rest, um, in periods of the year where it's heavier and lighter and, and also just where the players and teams are because quite honestly, sometimes it's, it's important for players to play a game that may be, uh, a little bit less pressure or maybe a game that is not, uh, as, as quite a high a level. Um, just like there's obvious value to playing games that push players to their very limit. But that sort of mixing um, and balancing of the of creating the competitive schedule, uh, that, that's a job of, a, of the, the club leadership, not a league uh, in our perspective. Um, but when you look at the travel, uh, the travel issue that, that you've outlined, that I think sometimes people take an um, overly simplistic look at it, but we certainly – are aware of the the demands of travel and the costs of travel, and it's it's something that we constantly try and balance between providing really good competition uh, with recognizing that this isn't professional soccer and not every game uh, should require a hotel stay or a flight. Um, so we try and create conferences that have a good balance of regional or local competition, um, and we've actually – done a pretty good job, I think, in the last couple of years of restructuring, realigning, um, adding clubs to get more and more uh, reduced travel within the conference structure. Um, and then uh, when you do have to travel over a bigger period, whether it's a six to eight hour uh, car ride or whether you have to get on a plane, that experience has to be fantastic. And if you look at, you know, our national events, uh, throughout the season, they're the biggest collegiate recruiting events in the country. The atmosphere is incredible. And when we started those events, one of the most important things to us was that we want players to come to our events and feel special and feel like they're doing something really, really unique and fun. And that motivates them to want to continue to get better and better and better because the environment is so positive and stimulating for them. So we try and balance, uh, that, that dichotomy. Uh, sometimes you need to travel to get really good competition, but you certainly don't want to travel to the point that you're um, making it too expensive uh, for people to participate in. And I'm not going to pretend to say that we have all of the right answers, but it's a balance and an equation that we are constantly looking at. And we've certainly made a lot of improvements on in the last couple of years as we've become better and better at, at, at running our platform. Would there ever be a, a chance that ECNL could perhaps cut down further on travel costs by perhaps merging with some of U.S. club soccer's. It, it, it's still under. I don't quite understand the corporate structure of ECNL and 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 U.S. club soccer. Is ECNL technically under U.S. club soccer at this point? Uh, the ECNL is sanctioned by U.S. club soccer, but it is a separate five hundred one c three nonprofit. So it's, a, okay. it's an independent organization from a from a legal, financial, and governance perspective. Uh, U.S. Club Soccer sanctions the league, and U.S. Club Soccer is a great supporter uh, of the mm-hmm. ECNL. Um, but it is it is an independent organization. Okay, um, and yet, could would there be a chance that the ECNL could perhaps merge with some of the other? Uh, U.S. Club Soccer has a network of national premier leagues. Um, would there be any chance for interplay between those? Why 
say in Northern Virginia, why are some why would you have a couple of clubs that are ECNL and a couple of clubs that are VPL? Um, could there be a merger there of some kind? Well, part of that uh, part of that answer, and I, I actually helped build the many of the NPLs across the country in my work at U.S. Club Soccer back in mm-hmm. 2012, 13, 14, uh, along the time when a lot of those leagues were starting up, uh, along with a lot of other really good people and, and staff at U.S. Club that helped put them together. So we think the NPLs are, are great great leagues and great competitions. So part of the answer to that is, uh, you know, we have somewhere around six to 10,000 youth soccer clubs in this country. And, uh, you know, you, you could have to talk to somebody else to get a, a better approximation than that. But when you're talking about those types of numbers, you can have people with a lot of different opinions about what they want out of the game and what they think is best for their club and the competition structure or the league structure that they want to put it together. So uh, part of the reflection of having different leagues and, and different competitions is reflecting the fact that we have a big, diverse country with a lot of different opinions. And in, in many ways, that can be really positive. And, you know, in some ways, that also can get a little bit messy and, and difficult to manage. Um, but I think it's always better to, for people to have choice um, and for competition uh, even between sometimes leagues and, and organizations, it tends to drive improvement in the same way that competition between players for roster spots drives improvement. So I think there's, if I had to pick a choice between having a monolithic, uh, top-down, everything's done the same way by one organization and, and with one perspective, or having a diverse ecosystem of of different experimentation of different philosophies, I would certainly choose um, I would certainly choose the latter. Um, but on for example, on the boys side, for example, uh, the boys ECNL uh, has separate uh, regular season competition within each of their conferences from the NPLs. But in the postseason, uh, the best teams out of the boys ECNL will meet the best teams out of the U.S. Club Soccer NPLs in the Elite National Premier League um, postseason playoffs. So. That is an example of where uh, we're working to create some ties and to create ultimately um, a unification in some type, um, but also recognizing the different structures and perspectives and philosophies that exist between clubs and leagues now. So where does the future go in a, in a couple of years? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> fluid and it's, it's uh, in some ways it's maybe more fluid than it's ever been, but that, that, can be something that people get uh, frustrated or upset with, so they can look at that as a vibrant ecosystem where change is happening. And uh, I think most of the changes in youth soccer over the last 10 years, most of them have been positive and good for the game. And so who knows what we'll be in a couple of years, but uh, I think everybody is seeing, as I said before, you want a balance of reasonable travel and local or regional competition with the best possible games that you can get um, for for the level of your teams, and, and that's what we're all trying to accomplish. So you're telling me that soccer people have strong opinions. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't noticed that before. Um, so um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure you've had your fair share of Twitter uh, Twitter exchanges <laughs> with some, with some of them. Yes, and uh, and and we are both survivors of Orlando uh, in the U.S. <laughs> soccer meeting. Uh, so. Uh, well, speaking of strong opinions, and uh, one of my most recent snarky takes on things, uh, perhaps overly sarcastic and so forth, was um, 
I did a post this week looking at all the different national competitions we have. Actually, not just in youth soccer, but in um, adult amateur soccer as well, where you know you have the UPSL has a national championship, the NPSL, the PDL. Uh, they all play national championships. And on the youth side, we have, let's see, we have the traditional U.S. Youth Soccer National Championships. We have the Development Academy, uh, ENPL on the boys' side. Uh, U.S. Club Soccer has, at one point, they had multiple on the girls' side because I knew a team from my area that played both for sort of a league and a cup nationally. Um, are these all necessary? Are these things that perhaps maybe just have one U.S. Soccer National Championship or one Youth Cup open to everybody, and then if teams want to go to showcases in – I know that um, ECNL just has a showcase in San Diego. Uh, if everybody loves to go to Disney, you know, my only regret about not having a kid in elite soccer is that I'll never get to take him to a soccer tournament at Disney World. Uh, but all these national championships, are are they – is there any way to put the genie back in the bottle and just have one? Well, um, I think part of that goes back to what, what we talked about, about just different values and different philosophies. Because ultimately, uh, if somebody is adamantly, uh, if they adamantly disagree with the, the philosophy behind a league structure, they're not going to want to participate in that championship. So, um for example, if and, and this is just an easy one to use, uh, not right or wrong, uh, but if, if somebody wants to play high school soccer, then there are certain competitions that, by definition, they can't compete in. And so immediately there, you're going to have um, people who say they want their, their they want a championship that they can participate in. Uh, you also have a, a wide disparity in terms of of, of level within those championships. Um, and some of them, I think, are, are, are true national championships in the sense that it is a very, very high level. It is the, uh, the very best of the best. And some of them are um, a significantly lower level championship. But um, is it bad for kids to have the opportunity to compete and have a great experience and, and uh, feel like they've achieved and, and, and won something that they're proud of? I, I would say that's a positive thing. Um, again, we can go and say that there is there sometimes a little bit of confusion or chaos. Yes, but at the same time, uh, I think we we would say that this country is still very young um, in its soccer culture. Uh, however much we can look back and say people have been playing youth soccer um, for I don't I don't even know forty fifty years now at some level or another in an organized competition. Uh, it's still very young compared to uh, the rest of the world. So the culture is evolving as the culture evolves, as you have more people that are that grew up playing the game and, and not just playing it, but grew up invested in the game as a big part of what, who they are and what they did. Uh, you're going to have new opinions of the best way to structure the youth soccer. But, you know, when you have when you have debates on, uh, prohibitions and mandates and you have debates on coaching style and you have debates on system and strategy and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's kind of appropriate that there's a variety of different competitions that people can enter based on what they believe in. And, uh, if you started from scratch tomorrow, uh, and somebody said, we're going to build one championship and use soccer, whatever that means, 
I think you'd pretty quickly find out that the country is pretty big. And I don't even know logistically how that could happen and be open for everybody who would want to participate in it. Because when when people point to Europe or they point to other countries in the world in terms of what they do over there, um, they many conveniently forget that Germany is, you know, the size of some of our states in this country. And mm-hmm. Belgium is the size of some uh, uh, a few counties in some states. And so, you know, you, you have uh, you have big, big differences. And, and I think what we have to do is find the best American way, the best way to make soccer better um, and to make soccer the standards higher and and clearer in soccer in this country for our society and for our membership. And, and that's not going to be replicating anything else. It can be informed by what happens in other places, but it's certainly not going to be replicated. So you've mentioned how sometimes competition and um, and choice uh, can be good for youth soccer, and there is uh, there's been other news in the past week, and that is that U.S. youth soccer is revamping its uh, its regional leagues that that feed into its national competition. It looks like they're it, it's hard to get a sense of what they're doing so far, but it looks like they're sort of cutting them up. Uh, in smaller pieces, and actually EDP, which has been part of U.S. Uh, club soccer in the past, um, is going to be administering some of these U.S. youth soccer uh, regional conferences. So uh, as you look at the landscape, is this a good thing? Is this something that U.S. club soccer needs to react to, or is it uh, simply something that it, you just look at and say, okay, great, good, uh, more competition for us, and that's good? Well, competition is always a double-edged sword, right? Because everybody wants to win, um, at least anybody with that competitive mindset wants to win. But at the same time, um, competition and, and, and sometimes in that process you lose, uh, that's what drives you to get better. So I think, you know, it's important to clarify that EDP is, has been a dual-sanctioned league for a long time in terms of having both mm-hmm. U.S. youth and U.S. club competition. Uh, and you're right. It's a little unclear exactly what is happening. And I think if you talk to 20 clubs in the market right now in that area, you'd probably get 20 different answers as to what they think is happening. Um, and that, that sort of uncertainty, uh, that's not a great thing as people are trying to figure out what does, you know, what does the fall season look like for them? Um, but I know U.S. clubs. Uh, feels very strongly in in the value of the of the NPLs and the and the structure of the NPLs and is going to be working with the clubs to put together uh, a competition and a league platform with all the all the things attached to that player identification opportunities coaching development opportunities but working with those clubs to put together a a platform that they are excited about uh, and like I said earlier. Um, when you have so many, so many clubs and so many different people involved, you're always going to have different opinions. And uh, EDP and their leadership made a decision to go and, and affiliate with this new hybrid structure. I'm not quite sure, as you said, what it looks like. Um, and they'll have to navigate that path. And 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 uh, for the clubs that that want to do that, then that's what they're going to do. And uh, U.S. club soccer's job, just like any other league's job, is to keep making their platform better and better so that more and more people want to be a part of it. And ultimately, that's you – know, we talk about this a lot of times when we're talking about um, 
you know, minimum standards and, and, and with respect to coaching. And I'm not a believer in, in, uh, you know, minimum standards making huge differences. I'm a believer in incentives and, and aspirational standards. Um, because, you know, as I've said in, in, in other, in other environments, making the worst experience slightly better isn't how we change the game. Uh, how we change the game is by providing incredible excitement and incentive for people to be, be great at what they do. And from that perspective, I think it's the same when you're talking about leagues and platforms and competitions is create a environment that people love and they are, are excited to be a part of, um, or, or enthusiastically trying to, to, to be a part of. And that's how we make the game better. And that inspires other people to try and do the same thing. And, and then you have all the positive values of competition in that. So I'm sure U.S. Club Soccer, um, is working with these clubs. In fact, I know they're working with clubs now and working on putting together, uh, some great platforms for them. And this is going to take a little bit of time to shake out how it is. And I'm sure U.S. Youth is trying to do the same. Um, uh, so we'll see, we'll see where it goes, but I feel good about where the U.S. Club Soccer Platform is going to be for those clubs. And, um, I think it's, I think it's going to be fine. One kind of offbeat question for you, and then I'll, I'll close with something uh, more specifically about youth soccer as a whole, and that is uh, the way things are going in this country these days, we're sort of seeing pro clubs that are trying to sort of reach their way downward and create uh, youth clubs. We don't see that many youth clubs, some of which have been around for a very long time, uh, we don't see a lot of them creating a professional club or something at MPS, MPSL level or PDL. Some of them do, but not that many. The only really professional club I can think of that has a giant youth base behind, uh, behind is the Richmond Kickers, uh, which competes in USL and and is uh, I know them well, being in Virginia, a giant a giant youth club. Do you think we'll see a point? in which uh, a lot of the clubs that you work with uh, try to spread out and become, you know, add the top of the pyramid, essentially, to where they essentially can have kids going up through all the way to a professional or semi-professional team? Well, I think also what you're talking about is adult soccer, um, because right. uh, adult soccer is a, you know, is a requirement for, for a professional environment. And, uh, you know, I, I think that also reflects the, the youngness of our country. Um, I, if you look at adult soccer registration, uh, it's been declining significantly uh, over the past 10 years. Uh, but I, I don't think that's a sign of, of, of the, the death of the sport in any way. I think it's a sign that uh, the generation of players that came through is, is finding other, other either other competition pathways right now or just not playing as adults anymore. Um, and hopefully, as we, you know, go to the next generation of, of players who are leaving college and uh, have, have spent a, a large part of their life in the game, they will want to continue to, to play and, and participate in soccer uh, as, they, as they grow older. And I, and I think if we had adult teams uh, with, with uh, the majority of our clubs, I think that would be a great thing. Because part of what's different between many, uh, if not the vast majority of clubs in this country and, and in other areas of the world, is that social framework. 
and that social framework where people who have been a part of the club their entire life and now are adults can still play or support the adult team with people that they've grown up with or or have been a part of the club with for a long time. And I think that sort of fabric, that social fabric, is really, really positive in in development and in creating a soccer community. And uh, as you've mentioned, most of our most of our youth clubs in this country do not have that adult uh, end and that that uh, sort of capstone team, and and part of that is is maybe the the, the development of the sport, but part of that's also financial, um, in the sense that there's no such thing as free lunch. Somebody's got to pay for it, and when you get into adult soccer, um, somebody's got to pay for it, and. Uh, you know, there's just there's just not a lot of opportunities right now. So hopefully, at some point, you kind of see that connection between the adult amateur leagues and then lower level professional leagues, uh, and then hopefully, I would say, at some point, some sort of pathway, you know, for for clubs that that uh, feel and see that there is a reason to maybe invest in an adult team because it can ultimately lead them somewhere. Um, but I think that that will be another part of the game that over the next five, ten years, it'll be very interesting to see how that grows because there's not going to be any less number of players that are that are coming out and, and becoming adults who have played played the game. If anything, you have people who are more invested in the game because the game, you know, grew up as they grew up. And uh, so hopefully that's something that we'll see in the future. And so finally, one big undercurrent in the – presidential election that just took place and in in all these discussions in youth soccer is essentially opportunity and that's opportunity for for kids at all levels whether it's just getting in some cases just getting kids off the couch and getting them into a team sport and in some cases just giving opportunity so that any player any talented player has a chance to develop and be identified um through all these different programs, all these competing programs, uh, do we have a good net in place now, good good programs to where we can really give all of our kids the opportunity to do as much as they possibly can uh, in soccer? Well, I think you touch on an issue that has multiple um, sides to it. So uh, one, from a financial side, Almost every club I'm familiar with has a scholarship program um, for players that that need financial assistance in order to be able to participate. And so, uh, of course, you can say you'd like there to be more scholarships um, or or more players that can receive that. But I think just about every youth club um, that's out there has has a line item in their budget to try and provide uh, financial assistance where it's helpful to allow players uh, to participate who otherwise uh, may not be able to. Um, when you when you go beyond that, then you, you look, there are certain areas uh, of, of the country or certain areas of, of cities and states that do not have a high soccer participation. And I think in those areas, you look and say that probably the biggest barrier to that is, again, the revenue – and the resources for somebody to invest time in building soccer in that community. So whether that's uh, somebody who who is paid 
to to build a soccer club in in a in a, an area of a city or in a new community or to build a league uh, that encourages uh, or provides an opportunity for for clubs that may already be there to to connect and and play in a more formalized way. Um, you, you look at uh, that as another area where increased resources in the game can help build the infrastructure that brings more players into the game from areas where maybe there isn't a, a high number uh, of players or a high per- a participation percentage. Um, and then you, you also, I think, ultimately have to look at the quality of coaching because the better the coach coaching is in the country, number one, um, the better the experience players are going to have. And when people have a better experience, they tend to talk about it more, be more excited about it, and attract more people to the sport. Um, and the better the coaching uh, quality in the country, uh, the more that uh, you're going to see players stay in the game because they're not uh, they're they're not overlooked, or a, a, a young talented player is not overlooked because they're small, for example. Um, or, or we don't have misplaced priorities and in terms of youth soccer that drives, drives kids out sometimes. And so I think, you know, you look at, uh, there's a, uh, there's a resource component to coaching education as well, that the more expensive coaching education is, the harder it's going to be to raise the quality of it, when the harder it's going to be then to grow the sport and keep kids in the sport. So I think you have a whole lot of issues and those are just some of them. Um, and I think there's a lot of good people and organizations out there trying to do things uh, to make those better. Uh, unfortunately, there is no quick fix on these things. Um, we probably all could be moving quicker in some areas or another, but uh, it's a, certainly an area for for focus and, and for uh, of need moving forward. But uh, I don't think it's being completely ignored, if that's your question. So the old school approach would have been you have your club that plays in a local league and then the state has an ODP program and that finds players not just from the best clubs but perhaps from not the best clubs, perhaps a standout player uh, at a club that doesn't have a lot of good players around that player and so ODP gives would give them another pipeline uh, which would be sort of the equivalent of what Germany does with its training centers where they are going out and finding people from various clubs and bringing them into a federation program, is what we have with U.S. Youth Soccer, U.S. Club, Development Academy, ECNL, and and the the programs we have there. There's uh, there's still ODP. Uh, there's ID2, um, the U.S. Club Soccer uh, Identification uh, System. With with all those programs, is that a better system than simply club and ODP, which we would have had maybe 15, 20 years ago? Well, it certainly provides different uh, different opportunities for players who may be overlooked in one system or another. Um, ultimately, I think what you've hit on is a need, a need for a better scouting system in this country um, to get to identify players because, uh, you know, there, there are players that are going to come out of every pathway and every platform. So there's going to be great players that come out of ODP. There's going to be great players that come out of ECNL. There's going to be great players that come out of uh, NPL or USYS competitions. There's going to be great players that take paths where they only play soccer, and there's going to be great players that play multiple sports. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, that's a wonderful part of our of our country, 
is that there's so much different opportunity. Again, on one hand, you can say it's confusing sometimes and, and duplicative in some ways. Um, but on the other hand, you can say there's a lot of different entry points, a lot of different ways uh, for a player to develop. Now, raising standards across all those platforms and providing a better uh, better experience across all those platforms is certainly important. But I think when you look and say, uh, at the very top, if you're a professional team or if you're uh, a national team head coach, you want to make sure that you don't overlook anybody. And I think one of the biggest areas of, of need in this country is a better scouting system um, and is a, is a system that that uh, tracks players better so that we don't have great players that fall through the cracks or, or great players that at one stage don't get selected because they're just missed and then they miss opportunities to continue to develop. Um, and then and kind of fall behind that way. So to me, that's one of the major major uh, needs and areas where a federation can can make a big difference with the resources that they have um, to to have scouts and uh, in every community. And and part of that also could be tapping into um, tapping into the people that are are there now. I mean, right now one of the negatives is that we have people in different silos. Uh, you're either in this, this identification program or that identification program, and that's where you look for players. Um, you'd like to see all those people ultimately, wherever they find the player, pushing the player in the same direction. Uh, when you're talking about national team and, and professional uh, teams, uh, in the sense of pushing them to be seen uh, for consideration at that point. But, you know, that's, that's where I think having multiple pathways helps um, keep kids in the sport and get kids in the sport from a variety, variety of different starting points. And then you'd also like to have uh, assurances uh, or, or confidence that regardless of the pathway that they come, if the player is good enough, they're good enough. And it doesn't matter what their affiliation is, and it doesn't matter what pathway they have. So uh, when you, whether it's a national team or whether you're looking at you know, a, a team in MLS, um, I don't think most coaches are going to care what the player's journey was at the end of the day if the player can come in and get a job done and be a good player that's the most important part and i think scouting and in a, in a bigger scouting pool and a better scouting process is is a real area of need in the country okay so thanks for coming on and uh, giving a, a good argument for the multiple pathway uh, system and for taking time out of your three four five six jobs uh uh, in, a, in addition to, to being a parent, which is we all, which is pretty much my only job, except for doing this blog and podcast, <laughs> it takes up <laughs> enough of my time. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, really appreciate. It. Hope to have you on the, on the show again sometime. No, I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I think the dialogue and discussion that's out there is positive. And and as we to, to finish with where we started, I mean, the, this clash of ideas and values and philosophies. Uh, I think can be very done, very good for the game if it's if it's done within within the right uh, frame frame uh, of mind and perspective. So, thank you for providing a forum. All right, thanks.